Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Empowering Clinicians to Optimize Patient Outcomes, Addressing Global Challenges in the Use of Immunotherapy in NSCLC, is provided by Agile. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. We are still facing challenges in optimizing the use of immune checkpoints in the first-line management of patients with metastatic non-cell lung cancer. Overcoming these challenges is going to be the focus of our discussion today. In this first chapter, we are going to take a close look into how to incorporate predictive biomarkers in the clinical decision-making and how this can affect patient outcomes in the first-line setting in the case of metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. This is CMA on ReachMD. I am Dr. Luis Pasares. And I'm Dr. Kristen Brown. A recent international survey had been undertaken focusing on U.S., on the big five countries in Europe, to assess how our colleagues are actually using those biomarkers at a time of deciding in the management for metastatic non-immune cell lung cancer patients. So could you actually bring to our audience how those findings, what they indicate about the global practice behavior today in our clinics? Thank you, Dr. Pazarez. So I think the relevant interim findings from this Agile survey show us a lot about the state of current molecular and immunologic testing and treatment approaches in the first-line treatment setting for our patients. So, for example, one of the first questions was regarding biomarkers that were routinely tested for in metastatic lung cancer. And overall, they found that PDL1, EGFR, and ALK were all well represented in terms of being evaluated for, but ROS1, BRAF, KRAS, and HER2 were not. As I think we know now, this will miss a significant proportion of patients that are eligible for both molecularly selected therapies that would be available as both standard of care and potentially for clinical trial options. I think it also represents a potential missed opportunity to be thinking about subsequent lines of care as well. Another question on this study evaluated when checkpoint inhibition is appropriate to prescribe in newly diagnosed patients. So about 70% of responders utilized using a PDL one of at least 1% and no autoimmune disease as sort of cutoffs for using this therapy. But 15% of respondents indicated that using a checkpoint inhibitor would be appropriate for patients with an actual biomarker. I think this is an important point for us to clarify as it depends on how we define an actual biomarker. I think we know now that for patients with classical mutations in EGFR or Alcrea arrangements, for example, they were either not included in our standard IO-based first-line trials, such as Keynote 189, or were actually shown to have increased toxicity and worsened outcomes when receiving IO alone or prior to molecularly appropriate TKI. However, I think for those patients whose tumors harbor mutations such as KRAS or HER2, we know that some of them could do quite well with IO-directed therapy. So it's important to also consider things such as co-mutations in genes, uh, such as SDK11, KEEP1, TMB status, as well as potential other clinical indicators of response to IO therapy. Another question asked about if PDL1 IHC was ordered for all patients diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer. About two thirds of respondents do that, 
and about 20% only test for PDL1 if they are eligible for immunotherapy and our tumors are found to not have an actual mutation. I personally favor testing for PDL1 for all of my patients diagnosed with metastatic lung cancer because it helps me plan for therapeutic selection while I await NGS results, and it also gives me insight into potential clinical trials they may be eligible for. I think it also helps with talking with patients about potential effectiveness of therapies and the risk benefits of some of the different options we have in the first-line metastatic setting. Okay, I think you really went through the relevant topics here. So one of maybe my feedbacks here is that it is clear that for the oncogene-addicted targets, it is clear that most of us are asking for at least the three or four more frequent ones, but still there are some others that the frequency our colleagues are actually testing is not very high. Let's say red fusions or a uh, met mutations and so on. Yeah, I think that's a great question. In general, as long as symptomatically the patient can wait, I do try to wait for those results to come back. And if I have to start therapy before I have those results back. I do usually start with chemotherapy alone, and then I layer in the immunotherapy with subsequent lines as long as they do not come back with an actual mutation on their tumor testing. Great. So, Dr. Pesares, let's take a look now at findings from some recent clinical trials. Do you think they, in fact, demonstrate that patient outcomes are improved when we incorporate these biomarkers into our decision-making? And I think we can start with our trials that use checkpoint inhibition as monotherapy. Yeah, I fully agree. I think uh, for those patients that are having high expression of PDR1, such as the case of patients included in trials like the Keynote or 24 or 042s, the, 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 the outcome is uh, a lot improved by using uh, pembrolizumab, for example, as compared to chemotherapy. Uh, indeed, we have now data also on long-term survivorship, showing that some, let's say, more than 30% of the patients are actually five-year five, five survivors, as compared to about half of the patients in patients that had received uh, uh, chemotherapy first. So all those data, including particularly the long-term follow-up data, are reinforcing the use of PDL1 expression as a very important and relevant guide to help us to decide what is the best treatment option for our patients. I totally agree with you. I think the uh, exciting updated survival outcomes, especially from Keynote 042, are really encouraging for our patients. And I think the idea that we can use IO therapy alone without chemotherapy really is a great quality of life option for our patients. And using information specific from their tumor to pick these, these treatments is really important. So Dr. Maron, which trials can you tell us where those combinations and how have shown a a benefit as compared to uh, immunotherapy uh, in monotherapy. Great. I would be happy to discuss these data. I think it's important, uh, similarly to how you just discussed the last question, that we don't technically know exactly how chemotherapy plus immunotherapy 
compares directly to checkpoint monotherapy. We haven't seen a study looking at that, but I think certainly there's encouraging data about using uh, triplet therapy with chemotherapy IO upfront in multiple studies and sort of our clinical experience that suggests similar to what Dr. Pesaris mentioned, that that's really sort of my default uh, treatment option for patients uh, who are fit enough to receive chemotherapy. So the studies that I think about when I talk about this with my patients are primarily Keynote 189 and Keynote 407. So those are our histologically defined platinum doublet pembrolizumab combination trials. Um, and we can see from updated survival data, continued clinical benefit for our patients. At our at the most recent clinical updates, median overall survival were uh, 22 and 17.1 months respectively. And it should be noted that in Keynote 189, improved overall survival was seen as pdl one expression increased. Empower 150, which is the combination of uh, carboplatin, paclitaxel, bevacizumab, and atezolizumab in non-squamous disease also has continued to show improved overall survival benefit compared to non-IO therapy with a median overall survival of about 19.5 months. Again, those exploratory analysis across pdl one defined subgroups showed improved benefit as pdl one expression increased. Checkmate 227, which is our combination Nevo-IPI study, which is the anti-CTLA-4 antibody, most recently was updated actually last month and showed sustained improvements compared to chemotherapy alone in both pdl one positive and pdl one negative disease. The hazard ratios updated were 0.76 and 0.64 respectively. For your overall survival rates with the combination therapy was 29% in the pdl one positive setting and 24% in the pdl one negative setting. Checkmate 9LA, which is the combination of everything, so platinum doublet with Nevo and IPB showed a median overall survival benefit of 15.6 months. Again, an interesting trend seen in pdl one negative disease in that benefit was similar to pdl one positive disease with hazard ratios of 0.62 and 0.66. So I think that speaks to kind of what we need to learn going forward about how to use these combination approaches and how we integrate pdl one and things like TMB into making these decisions. Yeah, I think you're totally right. I think for those patients that are low expressors or negative expressors, I think combination treatment is the way to go. All right. So our next question is... Um, Dr. Pazarez, why don't we switch direction and look specifically at some current and possibly emerging predictive biomarkers that are being used? What do you think our audience really needs to know? Well, I think the more important issue is that, first of all, we have to be sure that uh, our patients do not have a tumor with a genomic aberration that is dictating treatment with a targeted therapy. The second important thing, as we have mentioned here, is look at if my patients are wild type for those genomic aberrations, I would tend to look at the PDR1 expression, but if possible, I tend to look at some other biomarkers if I have the opportunity to have them like TMB or some simple genomic aberrations, they help me to make decisions sometimes. Still, I have to say, we cannot forget about some clinical factors. Let's say, if I'm having a patient that is PD with a tumor that is high expressors, that not mean for every single patient I'm going to use pembrolizumab or semipirimab or artesolizumab as monotherapy. There will be some cases where I tend to use chemo 
A good example would be patients that really are very symptomatic. So they do need a quick, a fast response. I tend to use chemo on those patients. Another good opportunity would be a patient which is high pressure, but in the range of 50 to 60%. The patient also is a woman. On those patients, maybe I would tend to use chemo as immunotherapy on its own as single agent is not as uh, beneficial for women as compared to men, or at least the, these are some of the data. Having some genomic aberrations that are not predictive of uh, benefit from immunotherapy, such as, let's say, LKB1 mutation or KIP1 mutations, may help me to decide against monotherapy in that case as well. Of course, always taking into account the patient uh, convenience, the patient expectations on the treatment as well, comorbidities and safety profile. Great. I totally agree with everything you're saying. And I use all of the important sort of clinical and tumor molecular information that you described every day in clinic. I think that my sort of big takeaway from our conversation right now is that it you're exactly right that it's important for each institution and oncology team to recognize how best to get the right information for each patient to make the right treatment decision. I think that there was a lot of interesting data recently discussed at ASCO thinking about how to optimize single agent immunotherapy for our patients whose tumors have high expressing PDL1 and also for our older patients. I think more data will be forthcoming as well at World Lung this year, and it's important for us to incorporate all of this exciting data into our clinical practice. In chapter two, we are going to use some patient cases to illustrate what we just learned. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Kristen Marone, and here with me today is Dr. Luis Pasarez. We're discussing how incorporating predictive biomarkers into clinical decision-making can optimize first-line patient outcomes in metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Welcome back. In the first chapter, we took a close look at how incorporating predictive biomarkers into clinical decision-making can optimize first-line patient outcomes in non-small cell lung cancer. Here in Chapter 2, we're using patient cases to apply what we learned in Chapter 1. I'm Dr. Kristen Marone. Hello, I'm Luis Pasares. Dr. Pasares, why don't we begin with a case discussion for a patient whose PDL1 status is between 1 and 49%? This is a 68-years-old man, prior smoker with some chronic bronchitis. The patient is in good shape, but is being recently diagnosed of stage 4 squamous cell carcinoma of the right upper lobe. The patient had metastatic disease to the pleura and is somehow symptomatic, particularly in terms of chest pain and some increase in dyspnea. At the time of deciding which treatment should I use for my patient, there are a number of possibilities. In that very specific patient, the PDR1 expression was 20%, and the patient had had a panel of NGS without relevant genomic aberrations, TMB actually being 10 mutations per megabase, very much on the average for those patients. When we discuss with my patient what would be the treatment opportunities, first, we discuss it about single-agent checkpoint inhibition with drugs such as pembrolizumab following the keynote or 42 trials. 
That was actually, to be honest, not my recommendation. I tend not to use monotherapy for those patients that are having, let's say, expression of uh, PDR1 on their tumors lower than 50%, unless the patient has some contraindication to receive chemotherapy, and I don't think is the case. So the two main opportunities or best choices for these patients would be a combination of chemoimmunotherapy, such as the regimen of the 407 trial with chemotherapy plus pembrolizumab, or could be an alternative with double immunotherapy, ipinibol, with or without chemotherapy, two cycles. In that very particular patients, we decided to go chemoimmunotherapy following the 407 trial. I don't think at the current stage we have data suggesting chemo-IO is any better or any worse as compared to chemo-IO-IO, but that patient was somehow more concerned about the potential side effects, particularly immune-related, which of course is increasing when you're using dual immunotherapy as compared to the use of only pembrolizumab in combination with chemotherapy. I don't know what you think. What would be your taking on that very patient, uh, Dr. Maron? I feel similarly that in that setting um, with how they are feeling and what that PDL one expression is, is that I would I would go to chemo-IO as my first uh, preference in terms of treatment option. Okay, Christian. So thank you very much. And let's move on to a patient whose PDL one expression is more than 50%. Yeah. So I actually just saw a 67-year-old woman last week with this presentation. So she had a 50-pack year smoking history and had recently been diagnosed with COVID. She had a CT scan for that, and she was actually found to have a five-centimeter mass in her right lung with mediastinal and axillary lymphadenopathy, several small hepatic metastases. She was asymptomatic. Her breathing was actually improving after her COVID diagnosis. She underwent a biopsy of her liver and was found to have TTF1-positive adenocarcinoma. So brain MRI was negative. Her labs were all completely within normal limits, including her liver function tests. And then the testing came back with a pd one of 90%. A TMB was about 11 mutations per megabase. And the NGS actually showed KRAS G12C mutation and a P53 co-mutation. So similarly to how you approach speaking with your patients, we sort of talked through the different options of treatment. Um, and I sort of explained that in this scenario where she is overall asymptomatic with a relatively low burden of disease and really was focused on maintaining her quality of life and continuing to work full-time. We talked about the Keynote 042 regimen of single-agent pembrolizumab with really great five-year overall survival rate of about 22%. And in that scenario, uh, we decided to proceed with that treatment option. I think similarly to your case, I should point out though, in some instances, I consider the Keynote 189 regimen. So adding chemotherapy to this to ensure sort of optimal disease control. I think in this scenario, if this patient had had either a larger or more symptomatic burden of disease, I would have added chemotherapy to improve our time to response. Or if the tumor NGS were to show a co-mutation that would suggest less benefit with single-agent IO, such as we mentioned earlier, SDK11 or KEEP1, I would also add chemotherapy here, even in the setting of high pd one expression, to try to Im- obtain improved response to therapy. I think f- using doublet immune checkpoint inhibition for patients whose tumors TMB might suggest a highly immunogenic 
tumor that are quite fit and could tolerate the increased toxicity of ipilimumab is an option. Another clinical scenario I would consider Checkmate 2274 would be those patients whose tumors progress on dervalumab during therapy for locally advanced non-small lung cancer who are, again, fit and interested in potential long-term disease control, although recognizing that chance is lower than for those patients who have not received prior IO therapy. And uh, how important is for you the gender? Do you tend to make any difference? Or, you know, maybe some of the trials show that uh, women tend to benefit less from uh, PD-1 blockade when given as monotherapy. Is that something that you take into account? That's a great question. I, you know, I think that a lot goes into that as well in terms of thinking about uh, the molecular profiling of those patients. When I think about my female lung cancer patients, when they have a significant smoking history and their NGS sort of plays out multiple mutations, I feel more comfortable with making a decision about single agent IO. But otherwise, I think you're right. We have to really take into account that data that has shown single agent IO might not be as effective for women. All right, Dr. Pazarez, we can't forget those patients whose PDL1 status is presented in clinical trials as greater than or equal to 1%, all comers who are PDL1 positive and those whose PDL1 status is less than 1%. Rather than examine specific cases, can you talk about how we might approach treating these patients in general? Okay, I mean, concerning patients whose tumors are PDL1 more than 1%, I mean, as you mentioned, I tend to go with single-agent immunotherapy for those cases with high expression, more than 50%, and tend to do chemo for patients that are with expression in 1% to 49% of the cells. Of course, uh, as we mentioned, I will take into account some other considerations. This is just the general rule. At the end, some 30% of the patients whose expression is more than 50% of the, the cells are actually being treated in my clinic with chemo-IO as compared to IO alone. And we have mentioned some of those cases, maybe women, uh, never smokers, maybe uh, particularly patients that are very symptomatic or patients with high tumor burden and so on. On the contrary, typically patients with expression of PD-1, PDR1 in 1 to 49% of the cells, I more often use chemo-IO, the 189 or the keynote 407 uh, type of regimes, unless the patient is having clear contraindications for chemotherapy. On those cases, I may think about using immunotherapy single agent, particularly if the patient is reluctant uh, chemotherapy and so on. For those patients that are PDR1 negatives, I tend to use combination treatments. Uh, Chemo-IO is a good possibility, 189 and 407 uh, type of regimes, but uh, dual immunotherapy is also an opportunity, particularly for those patients that are having squamous cell uh, carcinoma histology on those patients and tend to uh, discuss the pros and cons. The long-term data, which are pretty favorable, particularly with dual immunotherapy, but also the side effects. So unfortunately, that's all the time we have today. So I want to thank our audience for listening in. And thank you, Dr. Luis Pazarez, for joining me and for sharing all of your valuable insights. It was great speaking with you today. Thank you, Christine. It's been great to be with you in this discussion today. Thank you, everyone, for being here with us. 
You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Agile. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash agile. Thank you for listening.